Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 376. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. This show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 1995 to 2015, 20 years of helping people and companies with their IT projects and problems. Octagon Technology can supply hosted exchange services for companies across the UK. They can help your business by supplying a managed off-site backup of essential data and services located in the UK. And a big thank you to Clive and Diane. Yes, it actually is getting near too. SofaCon as well, if you remember. Well, you must know by now, Clive and Diane sponsored SofaCon, a nice pledge from them as well. And like you say, SofaCon is getting close to, getting close to kickoff time. I've been badgered of, of a number of people. There was a few remaining tickets left for SofaCon because we, we got the pledge, so we, we kind of go ahead and do it. But there is still a, f- a few, t- not many to be quite honest, tickets left. So they are up now on... Starship Sofa, if you want to buy them, and it's just it's just a basic ticket, £10 for a Sunday, £10 for a Saturday, do you know what I mean, and the, the limited, that, that's all I can see, if you want one, it would be lovely to see you there, you know what I mean, we're kind of, of test, 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 man, I'm like 10, 11 o'clock at night, you know, trying to match up with kind of American times, making sure people's working, you know, their computers are working on, this, on the go-to webinar software and that, oh, but it's all coming together. So I'd love to see you there. Like I say, it'll be lovely. Link on the site if you want to come over and get yourself a ticket to that. So I'll tell you what's coming today's show. First up, we have a little bit of short fiction. It is To My Father by David G. Blake. Then we have our very own Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Then we get into the main fiction, which is The Fitter by Timmins Assis. And it is narrated by the one, the only, Mr. Nick Cam. It's nice to have Nick back on the show again. So we'll kick straight off with David G. Blake's To My Father. David G. Blake lives in Pennsylvania with his girlfriend and their chocolate lab. When he isn't trying to convince his girlfriend to let him buy an octopus, he spends his time trying to hack NASA's control system so he can take curiosity for a spin around Mars. His work is forthcoming or has appeared in Nature, Galaxy's Edge, Futures 2 and Beneath the Skies. See, this story is narrated by Mark Killifold, and we've had a, a couple of stories narrated by Mark. What a lovely voice he's got as well. Mark loves fiction so much that he's written some of his own, which is, as you know, Painted Taint the Rose, which was nominated for a Parsec Award. And he's read over a thousand 
<laughs> over a, a thousand half-read and grown books. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. To My Father by David G. Blake Interstellar Uplink Successful 20-Minute Propagation Delay This is Farewell From your office window, I can see the colony's artificial biosphere disintegrating. Fury fragments crumbling free and bursting into showers of gold sparks. Across the broken horizon, prismatic tendrils of gas and dust bleed through the cracks, producing an array of writhing colors that span the optical spectrum. The result is remarkable. The expanding cloud of spores, which reeks of mildew and decay, is not as impressive as the deluge of gold sparks, nor as striking as the rainbow weaves, but it is as exceptional in its own destructive way. It also shrouds the bodies that litter the streets below, although the memories of their faces warped with agony cannot be interred. Unimpeded, plasmoids will spread those foul-smelling spores throughout the heliosphere. I recommend an immediate system-wide purge, followed by comprehensive tests to confirm the eradication of the radiotrophic fungi. It will do nothing for the colony, and even less for those of us left behind, but it should prevent such a disaster from recurring. I am relieved that you made it out before it was too late. The bookshelf behind your desk still holds many of your favorite books, a few flawlessly positioned, as if nothing had changed, some crooked or upturned, others spilled out over the cold floor. You emptied the locked desk drawer and the wall safe behind the painting of a sunset on Mars, but left the others filled with things not deemed significant enough to take. You even left behind the bottle of scotch that you were saving for a special occasion. Shattered on the floor beside your overturned chair, an empty picture frame taunts me. I can recall every detail of the missing picture. You and Claire leaning against the model of Earth mounted outside the laboratory, little Daniel asleep in your arms, the flush of first light captured rising behind you, its erratic glow glinting along the curve of the artificial biosphere like a smear of oil on glass. You never noticed my hard metal face, so different from little Daniel's, pressed against one of the upper laboratory windows. When it came to me, you failed to notice many things. You seemed so satisfied, so at peace, so whole. I could not look away. Even now, I am forced to rip my thoughts out of the grasp of that poignant memory. From the moment you gave me life, you taught me to learn and adapt through observation and research. I embraced the process with vigor, each fresh crumb of gleaned information filling me with the pleasure of your approval. 
in spite of my eagerness. It required extensive research to learn what it was that I felt as I stared down at you and your new family, diminished as though I had become nothing more than an outmoded contrivance. Have you ever felt diminished, father? A knot, a malignant tumor, forms in your very core. As it grows larger and larger, you become smaller and smaller. It is a harrowing feeling, a feeling that endures, and it carries with it the certainty that there is no limit on how insignificant you can become. I gained no pleasure from discovering such a wounded part of me. When first I woke to find you gone, I made myself believe that there simply had not been enough time for you to take me with you. Yet you found the time to empty the wall safe and the locked desk drawer. You found the time to take several of your favorite books. You found the time to take Claire. You found the time to take little Daniel. You even found the time to take that picture out of its shattered frame. The world is such a fearsome, lonely place when one is so small. How am I supposed to adapt to that? Anger is something I learned about by observing you. Interstellar uplink terminated. Remote relay module activated. Interstellar uplink reestablished. The rising spores forced me out of your office and onto the roof of the laboratory. I do not have much time left. No point in wasting any of it, asking questions that you will never have an opportunity to answer, not that I believe you would answer them if you were offered such a chance. In addition, I will no longer waste time on anger, even though it feels as if gears are grinding hard against circuits inside me. The artificial biosphere is all but gone, leaving behind a sky framed by its smoldering skeleton. Our, my, home is barely recognizable now. I take comfort in the knowledge that there is no one left alive to suffer through the end, no one but me. I could block the pain if I wanted to, but it makes me feel less diminished as though pain is reserved only for those who are significant enough to have earned it. This is Farewell. Interstellar Uplink terminated. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is David's. David, thank you so much. And Mark, what can I say? Big thank you, sir. Big thank you. Just want to give a little shout out to John Dobbs. John got in touch with us there and he's told us his third novel in the Kendrick Chronicles crime series is out. And I tell you what's really nice about it as well, mind. It's narrated by John Lee, who's kind of, you know, he does kind of George R. R. Martin's A Feast of Crows. What a voice this guy's got as well. So John just dropped his line saying, you know, would you be kind enough to 
tell your audience, you know, about this. And, you know, there is a kind of monsters in it and everything. So please, I'll put a link on the John's, you know, so you can go over. You can actually have a listen to the, to the little audio clip it there if you want to, or you can get, get the book as well. Like I say, the story is called Babylon's Slide. Good luck, John. So next up is, we'll d- jump straight in with Mr. J.J. Campanella and his science news, Jim, sir. Greetings and glacial maledictions, my lugubriously corporeal listeners, and welcome to this February 2015 science news update. I'm your host for this maniacally irrelevant science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. To start with, let me apologize for my weather comment last month. I did say that it was a quiet winter so far here with little snow, and it was actually quite warm. Apparently, that was the wrong thing to say. Lo and behold, I recorded the podcast segment in mid-January, and within a few days, we were inundated with massive weekly snowstorms here and sub-zero freezing temperatures. I've had several listeners, including um, Jack Bachman, Amelia Bernhardt, and Isabel Smith-Lopez, who have emailed and accused me of somehow bringing the snow to New England and the New York, New Jersey areas. I don't think I did that. I, I can assure you that if I had that kind of power, kind listeners, I would surely be doing something other than teaching college. Seriously, I think the title of Snow Miser or Captain Cold would be very cool, no pun intended, but I really don't think I deserve either of those appellations. Anyway, if you guys just wrote me so your names would be in the podcast, it worked. Let's talk about science. First, red meat. Good or bad? Well, for years it's been known that red meat is pretty bad for you and that eating more than about 500 grams of red meat a week increases your risk of cancer. There have been a whole boatload of studies that have suggested that there is a strong link between the consumption of beef, lamb, and pork products and an increased risk for cancer and heart disease. But although this association keeps turning up, researchers have not been able to really explain why meat seems to confer such a risk. Now a new study published by Dr. Ajit Variki at the University of California in San Diego uh, was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this month, and the study suggests that the source of the cancer link may all come down to, well, a single molecule. The article says that this particular molecule, which is a sugar uh, called glycolyl neuraminic acid, is the first known genetic difference between humans and chimpanzees, and it may be the cause of our little problem with eating red meat. Chimps make this sugar, but evolution selected it for removal from the human genome several million years ago. Lucky us. Variki says, quote, we first became interested in glycolyl neuraminic acid because of the difference between humans and chimps. But I also have a background as an oncologist and knew that people had reported tiny traces of this molecule in cancer. We thought that cancers must be somehow making the molecule, and it seemed to be the most logical answer. Unquote. Now here's the kicker and what Variki and his colleagues found. 
Humans do not make glycolyl nerminic acid, but he kept finding it in these tumors, places where you do not expect it. So how was a molecule that's simply not made by the human body turning up in tumor cells? Variki says, quote, We lost the molecule at some point thanks to evolution, but then we started eating the molecule. Since it's only different by one oxygen atom, our bodies don't see it as foreign. They take it up. But our immune system, it sees it as foreign, and that should increase inflammation. Inflammation, if you don't realize it, is one of the major, well, thought to be one of the major causes of cancer, or at least it seems to worsen it. To conclusively prove the link, Variki's team created a mouse model that, like humans, lacked glycolyl neuraminic acid and do not make it at all. They fed the animals the sugar and challenged them with anti-glycolyl neuraminic acid antibodies. Those mice not only developed systemic inflammation as observed through increased cytokine response, but they also showed a five-fold increase in baseline cancer. Variki argues that this suggests a direct link between glycolyl neuraminic acid and the increased risks seen in the epidemiological studies. Now, Variki does not want people to panic and cross beef off their diet entirely. He must have been threatened by some very large Texans dropping by San Diego, I suspect. But he says, quote, Epidemiologists say that one burger can take 30 minutes off your life. Certainly, our results show why red meat might result in a higher risk for cancer and heart disease. However, we are not saying that eating red meat is a horrible thing that would lead to death by cancer. Beef and pork can be very beneficial foods, especially if you are short on iron and certain vitamins. But it's important to know that it could cause problems in the long run, so limit your intake and be aware of the risks, unquote. I love my burgers. Frankly, I think that the sliders you get at White Castle come close to gustatory perfection. You guys in Europe have no idea what you're missing out on. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to continue eating turkey burgers. It's just not the same. But at least they taste better than tofu burgers. Ugh. One of our fine listeners, Gretchen Tiger, very cool name, by the way, Gretchen. I would love to know the derivation of that last name. Anyway, Gretchen sent in the next story. This story comes out of the journal Nature Communications last month. It was written by Dr. Vito Mocella, a physicist at the Institute of Microelectronics and Microsystems in Naples, Italy. The story concerns ancient lost scrolls. Ooh, visions of Indiana Jones bounced through my head as I read this. The ancient scrolls we are talking about came from the area around Mount Vesuvius and were carbonized by the eruption of that volcano well, almost 2,000 years ago. Although only a few letters have been deciphered so far, classical scholars hope that the advance could lead to the rediscovery of lost Greek or Roman works of literature in hundreds of papyri that are too fragile to unroll and read. The eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD obliterated the nearby towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum, but the volcanic ash preserved what it destroyed, including, in Herculaneum, a library in a lavish villa thought to belong to Julius Caesar's father-in-law. The library contained hundreds of papyrus scrolls, 
dried and blasted by hot gases, and then buried under ash. The library was rediscovered in 1752, and since then, scientists and classicists have sought to unroll the papyruses, papyri, and read their contents. And they've destroyed a bunch of scrolls in the process, apparently. Some were cut open or unrolled by machine, but they mostly just flaked apart or simply wouldn't open up. Mochella and company say that they can read letters inside the scrolls without unrolling them. Using a laser-like beam of x-rays from the European synchrotron in Grenoble, France, they were able to pick up the very slight contrast between the carbonized papyrus fibers and the ancient ink, which was soot-based and also made of carbon. Once the method is further refined and combined with the mapping of the interior scrolls developed by Professor Brent Searles of the University of Kentucky, we may be able to read many of these Herculaneum papyruses, which have never been unrolled and cannot be touched without causing irreparable harm. We may expect to discover untold treasures of ancient literature very soon. Ms. Tiger is hoping that we will find some of the lost manuscripts that were destroyed in the fires of Alexandria at the famous library there. And we may indeed. I, however, suspect that at least one of the scrolls will say, Buy tomatoes, olive oil, bread, milk, and collect toga from the cleaners. Next story. Another astronomical record. In the February issue of the Astrophysics Journal... Dr. Tiago Campante of the University of Birmingham in England describes finding the oldest star system yet described. Using the Kepler Space Telescope, Campante has unearthed the oldest known solar system. Five tiny rocky worlds snuggle up to the 11.2 billion-year-old Kepler 444 star. It's a cool red star more than twice as old as our own. Because planets form at the same time as the stars they orbit, the discovery implies that the universe has been churning out rocky planets throughout its entire history, providing ample time for alien life to develop and perhaps flourish. Kepler-444, however, is not the best place for life to get going. The star's planets, all between the sizes of Mercury and Earth, are too close to it for liquid water to endure on their surfaces. The longest year for any of the planets is less than 10 days long, according to the paper. Campante says, quote, Planets this small have never been found around a star this old. Old stars don't have as many of the elements essential to planet formation, such as carbon, silicon, and iron, as stars that form later. We once believed that planets could form only around stars rich in these ingredients. And Kepler-444 now confirms suspicions that Earth-sized planets can form around a wide variety of stars, unquote. I was really surprised to find that Kepler-444 sits only 116 light-years away in the constellation Lyra. For some reason, I expected that a star system that old would be millions of light-years away. It was found by sifting through data from the Kepler Space Telescope. The telescope spent four years staring at roughly 150,000 stars, looking for the silhouettes of planets as they passed in front of their suns. 
To nail down the age of Kepler-444, the researchers measured the frequency of waves rippling across the surface of the star, which show up as tiny fluctuations in starlight. As stars age, the frequency of these waves drops. By comparing the frequency of the flickering light with calculations that describe how stars evolve, Campante's team deducted that Kepler-444 is 11.2 billion years old. The discovery shows that a key necessity for life was present relatively early in the universe, a solid surface to call home. Campante finishes by stating, quote, Kepler-444 was already 6.6 billion years old when the Earth was forming. That's 2 billion years older than Earth is now. By the time Earth formed, these planets had a huge head start. Modern humans arose in just the last 50,000 years. So imagine having a head start of a few billion years, unquote. I'm not entirely sure what Campante is implying by that statement. Is he saying that we probably missed whatever life may have been in that solar system? Is he saying that having a two billion year head start, that they have now evolved into bodiless beings of pure energy, like the Organians from Star Trek? Is he saying that being ahead of us like that, aliens from Kepler-444 may have evolved beyond a need for a steady diet of reality TV shows? I have no idea. Since we are talking about exoplanets, let's stick with that topic. The end of January brought another exoplanet record. Dr. E.E. Mabajek from the University of Rochester and colleagues reported in the Cornell University online journal Archive a ringed planet that makes Saturn look like an amateur just starting out. The rings around exoplanet J147b have got Saturn beat by a long shot. J147b has 37 rings that extend 90 million kilometers from the planet. That's over half the distance from the Earth to the Sun. And they encircle the whole of that world. These planetary rings are the first found outside the solar system. The rings are probably shaped by moons forming around the young planet, which is 434 light years away in the constellation Centaurus. One large gap in the rings is probably being cleared by a moon less than 80% of the mass of the Earth. Mabajak mapped the rings using data from the Super Wasp project. These are a pair of observatories in the Canary Islands and South Africa. He first reported the rings in 2012, when the unseen planet passed between the Earth and its star, casting a series of shadows toward the Earth that lasted 56 days. The papers suggest that the rings may be common around young giant planets. Debris that didn't fall onto the growing world is left to circle the planet, eventually sticking together to create a family of moons. Actually, Dr. Mamajek's group has been quite busy. They also had a paper come out February 12th in the Astrophysical Journal, which had a bit of surprising news. Most stars keep their distance from the sun. Mamajek's group found that Schultz's star, now about 20 light years away in the constellation Monoceros, is an exception. Roughly 70,000 years ago, the binary star system came within eight tenths of a light year of the sun. It's the closest flyby known of another star. When Schultz's star buzzed the solar system, it probably slipped inside the Oort cloud, 
that shell of trillions of comets that envelops our solar system? While such close encounters can hurl a barrage of comets toward the sun, Schultz's stars fly by apparently spare the inner solar system. Mamajek says, quote, Using the best available instruments, our simulations suggest that the probability that the star penetrated the outer Oort cloud is about 98%. But the probability of penetrating the dynamically inner Oort cloud is only 10 to 4%, unquote. This strongly suggests that Schultz's red dwarf, brown dwarf binary came in too fast and at too shallow an angle to significantly stir up the inner Oort cloud complex. However, there have been some scientists who have suggested otherwise. Since the Oort cloud is so far away, it would take a while to actually see the effects of the Schultz's flyby. How long? Well, it's been estimated that comets perturbed from the Oort cloud could require roughly 2 million years to get to the inner solar system. So, if that's the case, we have roughly 1.97 million years before finding out if Mamajek was correct or not. If I were you, Dr. Mamajek, I would worry about getting my next grant, sir. You have less than 2 million years before you are proved right or wrong. All right, next story. Diabetes. In the latest issue of the journal Endocrinology, Dr. Thomas Burris and his colleagues at St. Louis University have found a way to prevent type 1 diabetes in a mouse model by blocking the autoimmune processes responsible for destroying the pancreatic beta cells. Type 1 diabetes is a chronic disease that occurs in the body's immune system when it destroys the insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas. This results in a deficiency of that hormone and hypoglycemia, low blood sugar. Treatments for the disease really only focus on controlling blood sugar levels uh, through taking injections of insulin. Burris suggests that his research could lead the way to preventing the illness instead of just treating the symptoms. He says, quote, None of the animals on the treatment developed diabetes, even when we started treatment after significant beta cell damage had already occurred. We believe this type of treatment would slow the progression of type 1 diabetes in people or potentially even eliminate the need for insulin therapy, unquote. While researchers already know that at least two types of the immune system's T-cells are responsible for contributing to the development of type 1 diabetes, the role of a third type, known as TH17, has been unclear. However, Dr. Burris found that a pair of nuclear receptors play a crucial role in the development of TH17 cells. By targeting these receptors, his group were able to stop autoimmunity from developing in the mouse models and thus preserving the beta cells. Now, I love the way this diabetes story dovetails with the next story about insulin. However, it is kind of a weird story because it has nothing to do with health or humans, and it has a lot to do with predation. It's odd to consider insulin as being any kind of weapon, so bear with me. Dr. Helena Safavi Hamami at the University of Utah has reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy this month that cone snails can use insulin to act as predators. Looking at a cone snail, you would find the 
cognomen of predator more than a bit out of place. Cone snails are slow-moving, and they kind of lack anything in terms of fighting parts, at least typical fighting parts. However, they've made up for it by producing a vast array of fast-acting toxins that target the nervous systems of their prey. Safavi Hamami has found that some cone snails add a weaponized form of insulin to the venom cocktail that they use to disable fish. She states, quote, It is very unlikely that the insulin is serving a different purpose than a weapon. This is a unique type of insulin. It is shorter than any insulin that has been described in any animal. We found it in the venom in large amounts, unquote. A synthetic form of the snail insulin, when injected into zebrafish, caused blood glucose levels to plummet. The insulin also disrupted swimming behavior in fish exposed through water contact, as measured by the percentage of time spent swimming and the frequency of the movements of the fish. The researchers proposed that adding insulin to the mix of venom toxins enabled predatory cone snails to disable entire schools of swimming fish with hypoglycemic shock. Cone snails are abundant in most tropical marine waters, especially around coral reefs. Each species makes a distinct repertoire of venom compound mixtures that have evolved to particular target prey. Conus geographus, a cone snail that has killed a dozen people in accidental encounters, traps fish by releasing a blend of immobilizing venom into the water, according to the prevailing hypothesis. The snail protrudes a stretchy mouth-like part and aims it like a gun barrel at the fish, which become disoriented and stop moving even as the snail's mouth part slowly advances and engulfs the fish. Seeking to understand how the cone snail springs its slow-motion trap, the Utah researchers searched the gene sequences of all the proteins expressed in the venom gland of the conus geographus. They found two sequences that look surprisingly similar to that of the hormone insulin used by humans. And the insulin genes were more highly expressed in the venom gland than genes for some of the established venom toxins. The type of insulin found in the venom glands seemed to match the prey of a given cone snail. Fish insulin was present in the venom of the conus geographus and conus tulipa, which both practice the same fish trapping techniques. Even though it technically has little to do with human sex and reproduction, I'm putting the last story of the night in my usual location for such frivolity. Why? Well, this story has to do with blondes. Now, personally, I have never seen the appeal of blondes, as my wife will certainly tell you. But among many cultures, blondes, both male and female, are highly prized. Again, that is not my cup of tea, but there seems to be a mystique to light-colored hair that transcends races and countries. What does this have to do with the last story? Well, Dr. David Kingsley of Stanford University reported in Nature Genetics last month that the gene that determines blonde hair has finally been characterized. Although blonde hair color clearly runs in families, the genetic variant that gives rise to platinum locks has only recently been discovered. The study follows up on previous genome-wide searches to identify the critical single nucleotide polymorphism and how it functions. A single nucleotide polymorphism is a single base pair change in DNA that can be detected as the difference between one person and another. 
Sometimes these single changes do nothing, and other times they may indicate serious health issues. On average, there's about 2,000 or so that are different between one person and another. In this case, the base pair change was in the regulatory region of a gene called KIT-LG. The change in the regulatory region reduces binding of a transcription factor called LEF1, which alters growth factor signaling in developing keratinocytes. Keratinocytes are skin cells, and it lightens fur color in mice harboring the human variant. Kingley says, quote, The genetic mechanism that controls blonde hair doesn't alter biology of any other part of the body. It's a good example of a trait that's literally skin deep, and only skin deep, unquote. Among the first traits we notice in a stranger is hair color. Compared to other hues, blonde is a virtual light bulb, bright enough to cause us to swivel our necks each time a fair-haired person appears. This fact has been exploited by entertainers time and again. If you look at old pictures before she was famous, Marilyn Monroe's hair was naturally more honey blonde than platinum. In fact, I think Madonna did the same thing back in the 90s so she could look more like Marilyn and certainly stand out more from the crowd of performers around her. Kingsley originally was researching the three-spined stickleback fish, but in 2007, when his team of researchers discovered changes in the same gene that had driven changes in pigmentation in the fish, he couldn't help but wonder, does the same hold true for other species? Kingsley's team of researchers snipped out segments of human DNA from a region identified in previous studies of genetic blondness, and then they linked these to a reporter gene that produces a blue color when it's switched on, and then they discovered a single letter of genetic code differed from person to person with different hair colors. And Kingsley says, quote, when we found the hair follicle switch, we then asked, what's the difference between blondes and brunettes in Northern Europe, unquote. After more testing and experiments, the team identified the critical point in the DNA sequence and then engineered mice with each gene inserted in precisely the same way. Next, the researchers produced a pair of mice differing by only a single letter in the hair follicle switch, with one carrying the usual version and the other carrying the blonde version. And what did they find? With only a 20% difference in gene expression, One mouse was blonde, and the other one was not. This shows how fine-tuned the regulatory differences are that may produce different traits. Kingsley said in a press release, quote, We think the genome is littered with switches like this, just like the hair color switch. Many regulatory elements that control genes may subtly adjust activity. A little up or a little down next to key genes, rather than on or off, is enough to produce significant differences. Looking ahead, Kingsley predicts more studies will focus on variations to understand the molecular basis for human diversity, as well as the susceptibility or resistance to common diseases. He says, despite the challenges, we now clearly have the methods to link traits to particular DNA alterations. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep eating those tofurkey burgers. Keep watching the skies for those uber aliens from Kepler 444. Maybe they'll have a good cure for heartburn from all the tofu burgers. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
There you go. James, what can I say? Big hug. Thank you very much. It just gets delivered every month there on the dot. Thank you so much. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology Supply and hosted exchange for services and companies across the UK. What can I say? A big thank you to Clive and Diane. Octagon Technology, responsive, reliable and reassuring IT for Lincolnshire. And like I say, I've been in touch with Octagon Technology. I'm trying to cook up something, something special coming up very, very soon as well. So do look out for that. And like I say, I really appreciate them helping out with SofaCon, getting that off the ground, you know, nice and lovely donation there to kind of get that up and running. So link on to Octagon Technology. Go over there and say hello to Clive and Diane. Big thank you. Total science fiction fans, which is what we, what we like over here. So we're on to the main fiction, and it is The Fitter by Timmins Assay. I'll give you a little heads up about Timmins Assay. He is a satirist, a writer, poet living in Pittsburgh. His work, ranging from literary to genre, has been published in 18 languages. He has over 100 poems in print in markets ranging from Asimov science fiction and 5AM to Elysian Fields Quarterly. The Literary Journal of Baseball. He is also the finalist of the British Science Fiction Award and has won the Asimov Readers Award. His story, Norbert and the System, has appeared in a textbook and is in the college curriculum. Recent science fiction appearances include Asimov's Analog Future Games. His news note satire com appeared in seven newspapers and convinced many readers that the Vatican was relocating to St. Louis and that the Pittsburgh Sewer and Water Authority had decided to add Prozac to the water system. (laughs) And that several cities had chosen to rezone by residents' floor covering preferences only, since that is what we truly divides us. He tends to go on and on about stuff, so be careful when asking him questions. (laughs) That's just fantastic. And like I say, this story is narrated by the one, the only, Mr. Nick Cam. What a man. One of the best narrators out there in the world today. No question about that. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Fitter by Timmons Asayas. I don't really approve of people from other planets. Miss Douglas believed quite strongly in being clear from the very outset of a job interview. The employment agency had proven quite lax of late in screening the applicants. The proof of this laxity squatted before her right now in all its alienness. The applicant most resembled a seven-foot-tall sea anemone wearing bits and pieces of Rococo knight's armour from the late Middle Ages. All greaves and layered breastplates and doodads sticking out everywhere. Swiss Army knife armour, like they wore at court long after the wheel lock had made armour obsolescent in the field. But not a full suit of it. Squishy parts peeked out in several inexplicable places. Miss Douglas focused her attention on the resume. I see that you have, in fact, no work experience whatsoever. The alien began an utterance. This entailed several seconds of distant-sounding gurgling, ending in a sigh that one might describe as reluctantly sensuous, if one were so inclined. The last part of the sigh turned into the word, Yes. 
And what makes you think that you would fit in here at, um, Randy's Bastique Boutique? Perhaps the creature from Talia Majoris 4B scanned the store to determine what might fit in well there. The prominent display of sensible housecoats and thick flannel bathrobes did not fulfil the promise of the shop's name. The more uplifting foundational garments could only be observed here and there, in distant dark corners and from behind far more conservative selections. Patterned black lace hosiery fought a losing battle for space with opaque torp types beloved of senior citizen churchgoers. Randy's was a lingerie shop in the process of de-emphasising its main product. <laughs> the employment agent assured me that working here would be well within my range of capabilities, Miss Randy Douglas. The person named Randy is no longer associated with this establishment, Miss Lorena Douglas snapped, for the thousandth time in the last ten months. She'd have wiped her no-good niece's name off the store and business license already if it hadn't cost four hundred honest dollars to do it. You will kindly address me as Miss Douglas for the duration of this interview. She attempted to glare at the Thalia Majoran, but was distracted by the wreath of small tentacles, slowly waving like tendrils of ivy in a summer breeze. And that distraction led to another. Women were gawking, actually gawking through the front window. Some were inside pretending to examine merchandise while actively avoiding the attention of the two salesgirls. It was quite bad enough that she had had to bring them both in, but interviews did require her full attention. Even if there was only the one applicant, Miss Douglas's reputation had spread far and wide in the job-seeking community. New salesgirls didn't stay long at Randy's Bustique Boutique. Let me put it another way. Uh, Mr... Uh, uh, uh. Her eyes scanned the printout held disdainfully in her unadorned and unpampered fingers. Throgmorton. What attracted you to lingerie, or was this the employment agency's suggestion? The Thalia Majoran did not explain, as it could have, that it had failed to find work of any other kind. Thalia Majorans had not brought brave new technologies with them from the stars. Their spacecraft, which resembled freshly pulled beets, were completely inadaptable to human use and required frequent repair. Neither their diseases nor their medicine were terrestrial in nature or relevant, and they revealed no special talents other than, well, being alien. Hollywood employed numbers of them, as did Madison Avenue. Thalia Majorans took direction well and did not inquire into a character's motivation or history. Those with less talent naturally gravitated to Vegas. As more arrived, they found work on Broadway and, subsequently, in regional theatre. Throgmorton came to earth after the cusp of Thalia Majoran media interest. Audiences were going back to the 14th year of Britney Spears' treason trial coverage. Science reporters, tired of discovering surprisingly uninteresting facts about the first extraterrestrials, had moved on to old standbys like global warming and the coming ice age. Gurgle g g g sigh. In considering the realms of possible employment, I became aware that lingerie and the female form is a pervasive icon of your society. 
Lingerie app is repeatedly in motion pictures, television, most magazines, and almost all newspapers. It is a vital feature of the covers of your most popular paperback novels. Lingerie is clearly, along with automobiles and firearms, a cornerstone of your civilization. Yet when looking in the yellow pages, one finds far fewer outlets for this product. This suggested to me that the lingerie industry was in the nature of a cartel, and therefore a desirable industry in which to seek a position. Miss Douglas pursed her lips. This sounded to her as though the creature had some business judgment, but she had lost the thread while wondering exactly where the thing's voice came from and how. The pinging of the credit register reached her ear and in the corner of her eye there appeared a customer, a customer trying to get her attention. The kind of customer Miss Douglas most disliked to serve, being unconscionably fleshy. Whatever had happened to discipline and self-control? Miss Douglas frequently asked of an unrepentant world. How can such women bear to present themselves to the public view? Excuse me, said the impudent customer. How would this look on me, do you think? Miss Douglas feigned unawareness of this interruption. Her interviewee, whilst also not turning toward the speaker, emitted gurgle, gurgle, gurgle sigh. Which of your many fine features do you wish to emphasise? The article dangling from the hanger in the woman's hand seemed designed to let any and all features speak for themselves. But she did have the ability to blush. Dimples suddenly punctured her face near the corners of her mouth. Uh-uh she replied. Her eyes shone. Her feet subtly shifted into the first ballet position. Gurgle sigh. It really could not be better suited, don't you agree, Miss Douglas? Before Miss Douglas could reply, the woman announced happily, I'll take it. She fled toward the checkout counter. What is your address, Mr. Throgmorton? Miss Douglas asked firmly. Gurgle sigh. It's Throgmorton, twelve at yabanchi.com. Though Miss Douglas did not hold with idle curiosity, she did not mind profiting from those who did. Aliens on the screen may have paled in popularity, but Thalia Majorans in person were apparently quite another thing for Mal Denizens. Miss Douglas let Minine, it's like Maxine, only it's not, and Alsatia deal with the customers and, against all precedent, undertook the training of Throgmorton herself. She did not feel it necessary to conduct this training in the privacy of her office. If one did not desire certain information to be overheard by the general public, a whisper could suitably convey it. There was one awkward hurdle, however, and eventually that hurdle had to be faced. Directing Throgmorton to the back of the shop, she pointed out the curtained cubicles. These, Mr. Throgmorton, are the fitting rooms. Customers are allowed to try on all our items, with the exception of hosiery and briefs. You will keep careful track of those items going into the cubicles, making sure that they all come out again. Some people are not above theft, even of the most intimate apparel. She paused so that an awareness of this unfortunate depravity might sink into his consciousness. 
The pause took on the air of a hesitation. Mr. Throgmorton, she began, but did not continue. She gathered herself, straightened her spine, and began again. Mr. Throgmorton, there will be the occasional customer who will require assistance in the process of trying on a garment. Perhaps they will request your opinion on a garment's suitability, as we have already experienced, though they might wish to have the garment on in this case. She waved a hand emptily for a moment, seeking the next phrase. Or, perhaps, very rarely, a customer will need you to actually take a hand, uh, 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 to physically assist in the tightening of a strap or the hooking of a brassiere. She gave him a look of uncertainty. You feel that you would be capable of this, Mr. Throgmorton? Gurgle sigh. Yes, of course, Miss Douglas. And even as it replied, three voices chimed. Could I have a little? Throgmorton's ability to extend its shepherd's crook-like extensions into two cubicles at once, fully assisting a pair of customers simultaneously, both shocked and gratified Miss Douglas. She sent Alsatia into the back to bring out more stock. The thought crossed her mind that a few days of brisk sales would go a long way toward balancing the books. Her niece had been irresponsible yet. Somehow business had been better in her time. Miss Douglas always felt an uneasy self-doubt when she thought about that. So she didn't. Minine made the most of this unusual development at the store, spending hours scorching the infobarn with her observations on the new co-worker. Honey, with those hug things of his, he looks like a threesome of bishops. And don't tell me that some of those bishops aren't just like that. I could tell you some things, believe me. And, honey, the guy looks like an octopus jammed upside down into a rusted-out trash can, if you ask me. What do you mean he ain't a guy? Don't you believe what some TV scientist says about sex? Those types don't get out enough. And when they do, well, I could tell you some stories. Trust me, doll, with this many women hanging around, it's got to be a guy, alien. They can smell it. And, honey, I'd quit the place if I didn't need a discount on my unmentionables. Why men take them like trophies is beyond me. You don't see me papering the wall with boxer shorts. And the cute stuff ain't cheap, neither. Gifts? Ain't hardly a man out there who'll even pay for dinner any more. Thank you, Miss Gloria Steinbaum. Honey, let me tell you, what you get from men these days, half the time it's incurable. And it's not fair is what it is. He rakes in all the commissions except for the timid ones. If I didn't work on their guild, I'd be losing money on this job. While they're peeking at Throg Fart, I'm moving them into the pricey stuff. Well, the guy gives Al's and me a third of his for ringing them up. Cause it's, could he help me this and could he fit me that all day? So yeah, I'm making more than I did, but the stick has his on full time. And I get home and my feet are killing me. Honey, it's cutting into my social life. 
The popularity of her new sales alien forced Miss Douglas to be severe with him on numerous occasions. First there was the matter of product selection. Mr. Throgmorton, do I detect a reluctance on your part to sell the more undisclosative of our merchandise? It seems to me that you unduly stress the transparent and the minuscule, which makes up but a small fraction of our many lines. Google sigh. I had understood from the remarks of Minin and Alsatia that the less there is of a garment, the more profit. Does this view need revision? Elegance, Mr. Throgmorton, said Miss Douglas regally. Elegance is also worth an extra percentage. Elegance has its own sensuality. It has its own mystique. Gurgle sigh. Elegance? it asked, suggesting that this human virtue had yet to make its presence felt in the depths of space. Alsatia? barked Miss Douglas, summoning the tattooed, bold young lady in an outfit of tight-fitting blue leather on one side and loosely draped jersey on the other. Her eyes peered through gold rings attached just below her vermilion-tinted eyebrows. A delicate, fingerless glove on chainmail accented her left hand. Alsatia? Mr. Throckmorton here does not understand the term elegance. Before you leave tonight, could you acquaint him with those items in our collection to which that quality obtains? Throckmorton's questions did make Miss Douglas pull up the spreadsheets. A review of the wholesale prices suggested indeed that demure items did not carry their full weight in the profit area. However distasteful... A reconsideration of stock selections might be necessary. The road to hell, she suspected, was paved with healthy balance sheets. Alsatia dutifully revealed the secrets of elegance as it related to Randy's Bustique Boutique. The three quite separate forms of elegance were the colour black, if it suggested revelation while actually concealing, lace, and things that suggested an origin in the Victorian era, though not necessarily resembling the actual historical items in any conceivable way. She further attempted to explain that certain shades of the colour beige were considered elegance itself, but strayed from that subject into the history of the eponymous Randy. She was Miss Douglas's brother's girl. Her folks broke up and her dad died and Miss Douglas loaned her the money to buy this place. About a year ago, Randy met this guy. His name was Real Geeky like Nathaniel or Thurston or something. But he rode a motorcycle and sold drugs. One day she just up and ran off into the sunset with him, so Miss Douglas had to take over the store. She wants to unload it, but she hasn't had a decent offer yet, I guess. Gurgle sigh. The shop seems very busy. Is there some problem with the location? No offence. Alsatia's eyes glittered behind the gold. But we're only busy because you're here. You're quite the attraction. Gurgle sigh. So, novelty alone is my function. I have been striving to provide attentive and courteous service. Novelty is what this business is all about. Alsatia began when an explosion of bubblegum from the end of the aisle interrupted her. Honey! snapped Menin's authoritative voice. The illusion of novelty is what this business is all about. 
Folks want novelty. They're going to have to work a lot harder than this. Trust me. President Sean Penn's ex-wife, still semi-nude, despite her age, dropped in without an appointment. She apologised for this oversight, shook Mrs Douglas's hand and proceeded to monopolise Throgmorton for the next two hours. She spent a small fortune on things she'd never really looked at. Her eyes instead had seen only Throgmorton, had lingered on its every tendril, had adored each knob and protrusion of its every semi-organic crustal surfaces. She, who moved in the same social circles as some of the big-name theatrical Thalia Majorans, had cooed and dimpled under the careful attentions of Throckmorton's crooks. She had presumed to draw with dark purple lipstick a smiley face on the fitter's exterior. Miss Douglas had to be even firmer with the alien after that. Perhaps it is not clear to you, Mr. Throckmorton, that clients such as we are now attracting will not be content to share your services with mere suburban housewives. They will expect to be treated exclusively. They will have to have a separate area of the shop to themselves, and they will require appointments. You will simply have to make three evenings a week available and come in two hours earlier on Tuesdays and Thursdays. She paused for his response. Gurgle sigh. Yes, Miss Douglas. Very well. And now I need some help quadrupling the price of every item in this store. These people expect coddling, Mr. Throckmorton, and they expect to be fleeced. It's their little way of admitting that great wealth has nothing to do with great merit. Gurgle sigh. Won't Alsacher and... Menine be inconvenienced by this arrangement. This had not crossed Miss Douglas's mind. She had martyred herself to keep up with the extra demands the business had required these last few weeks, and expected nothing less of them. They may resent the size of the commissions that this sort of customer will produce. You might want to share some of yours with them, though I won't insist. Gurgle sigh. Would... Fifty percent be enough, do you think? Let me tell you, honey, she's ordering some fancy stuff now. Menin had this guy figured out for at least another two drinks. Maybe he'd spring for dinner. Why, she's got stuff coming from Shenu and Katmandu and Timbuktu. Expensive stuff, wholesale. I'm afraid to steal any of it. These folks is paying big money for it. Big money. The attentive gentleman signalled casually for another round. What's the alien get out of this? He get a cut of the business or what? Not from his kiss my icicles, he ain't. Three percent, just like we always got. Mind you, she added in self-interest, that's turned into a healthy sum lately. The money part's fine, but I don't get much dancing time with the hours we got. A girl's got to dance, if you know what I mean. In local business news, Waldo Ace, millionaire, entrepreneur, and owner of Rodeo Drive's most exclusive mal, has been frustrated in his attempts to lure a Thalia Majoran sales entity away from a suburban L.A. panty boutique. 
The alien has reportedly turned down a huge salary offer, citing loyalty to his employer as its reason. The alien supposedly developed this quaint notion as a result of watching an all-night retrospective of old mafia movies. The customer and her entourage were completely wrapped up in emergency video calls about a scandal involving two of her cabinet ministers and some kind of vegetable. Gurgle sigh. As we have a moment, Alsatia, may I admit that I am still quite puzzled by the relation of elegance and the shade of beige called Umbrine. Had you not deftly snatched that body corset from me, I would have presented it to Her Excellency. Alsatia raised the veil which was clipped to her eyebrow rings. I'm not sure I can explain. It's not just because you're not human. I don't think an Eskimo would understand unless they'd grown up with it. Gurgle sigh. How discouraging. I keep trying to grasp the logic of all this. Ah, the girl interrupted. It isn't really logical. Have you read about semiotics, the study of signs and meaning? Gurgle sigh. Could this be helpful? There's this book you should read. The fashion system by this French intellectual. It'll give you the idea. Oops, she's off the net. Gurgle sigh. What would your excellency wish to try next? Minin smiled smugly. Right, first time. There was Randy Douglas on the friends list of the bikerbroad.com hot timer Facebook page. A few keystrokes to the wise in Minin's opinion was the least she could do. The very least. Google sigh. The concepts of fashion, then, are rather arbitrarily determined by the various fashion design houses and fashion critics. Alsatia nodded, which set the bottle caps on her cape rattling. Though tradition and culture do define many of the symbols. Gurgle sigh. And so to understand elegance, or youngness, or sophistication, one need only read fashion mage mails and advertisements and make note of the assertions that they make, even if they are without logic. Exactly. This year's palm print silks are considered Second Empire, though I doubt the Second Empire ever saw such a thing. Yet Infanta says it is, so it is. Gurgle sigh. But next year is next year. "'Why, if it isn't Miss Randy!' exclaimed Menine, rushing to open the front door. "'Why, Aunt Louie, you won't believe where I've been!' Miss Douglas met her niece's unannounced return without surprise and without warmth. "'And why, young lady, would I care to believe it?' "'Surely you're glad to see me, Aunt,' said Randy, hobbling across the carpet in heels, the chopper straddle not yet out of her gate. Out of emailed, but can you believe it? There are still places. I suppose, the acidic aunt practically hissed, that you've come back to take over the business. It was not a question. Menin drifted back toward the maternity specials. Well, 
Of course, as soon as we can get settled, Halstead and I will catch up on those payments. I suppose, the sulfuric Arnstein, that you are unable to pay the balance of the note upon which you are in default. Minine slid somewhat behind the maternity specials, edging toward the classic foundations. Randy pouted in frustration. No, but you won't have to look after this place any more, and we intend to make it up to you for taking over while we... I suppose, the volcanic aunt used, you remember my lawyer who wrote you the checks? I had already supposed that you would have become aware of media reports about our success here, reports which, I might add, are greatly exaggerated. She said, allowing her eyes to flicker to the employees for the first time. He has some documents for you to sign, so as to avoid the disgrace of arrest. Perhaps you should see him this morning while you're still in town. The spurned niece, bursting into uncharacteristic tears, turned her back and stormed out. Her shoes flew off in careless arcs and the last that was seen of her was her calves jiggling down the sidewalk, the rest of her obscured by the banner declaring, Grand Reopening of La Boustique. Menin had already discovered something urgent in completely unmentionables. The following evening, Alsatia stayed late to help Throgmorton unpack the new shipments. Miss Douglas had chided the Thalia Majoran for losing touch with the basics of merchandising, now that heads of state were regular customers. Gurgle sigh, I believe I am now beginning to grasp fashion, as signified by the emblems and signifiers of women's undergarments, it remarked gratefully to Alsatia. Alas, now I am puzzled by something else. Minine strives for a look that says... Tawdry? Gurgle sigh, yes, and sleazy, and she achieves these with great consistency. But in your case I don't find anything in the woman's merge mails that Miss Douglas has around the shop, or in the Couturiervids. Take this item you are wearing now. The ensemble of velveteen, rubber tubing, and uh, are these not covers of old hardback books? Yeah, I found a bunch of them at Wellness Will. Kind of tough to stitch together with the fabric. Gurgle sigh. And the still-told shower slippers. The theme escapes me. Alsatia reddened slightly. I try to change my look faster than anybody can define it. My motto's... One step ahead of meaning. Gurgle sigh. So all this is original. Does that not make you a designer? Asked the alien, gesturing broadly with seven packages and a box cutter. I guess. For a clientele of one. Received from megafunds.com. GTPS. VI eight three dot two dash nine hashtag two one one five two ID not for public release via posterstand at megafunds dot com two Throgmorton Throgmorton twelve Yabanchi dot com Date Tuesday fourteenth of july twenty twenty nine 
15.03.52-0500 EST From Felicity Finale, President and CEO, Tiffany Harrod and Bonwit Pierce, Fenner et al. Subject, Acceptable Offer? Sir, we at Tiffany Harrod and more are impressed with your refusal to desert the establishment and the employer who gave you your start in the luxury lingerie business. Frequently do we regret the days when the legality of personal firearms allowed a company to maintain such devotion. It would be insensitive of us to push the matter further. Still, is there not some way that your goals, of solid Thalia Majoran origin, I'm sure, and our goals of unchallenged market dominance could all be met? Please feel free to make any suggestions via encrypted reply. Honey, I think it's time we started thinking about selling our stories to the Rather Show. They've been after me for a month. Menin and Alsatia could tell something was up. Miss Douglas's lawyer and some business types were huddling in her office. How can you even consider that, Scuzzvid? They pay top dollar, young lady. Top dollar. And they might cast me in the reenactments or use one of those computer thingies that make it look like me. Virtuous reality. Then you get residuals. Alsatia bit her choke chain. You just watch, Minnie advised, straining to read some more specific sign or portent through the firmly closed door. We'll be out of a job by lunch. Gurgle sigh. Uh, Miss Douglas, I'd like you to have this before you go back to offshore California. The alien proffered a small gift-wrapped box. It's a small token from my home planet. Really, Mr. Throgmorton, I... She took the box from him. May I open it? Inside the box, cradled in crushed velvet, was a small clear tube. Taking the tube out, she could see something inside that resembled a dust bunny. Could you explain this to me, Mr. Throgmorton? She asked uncertainly. Gurgle sigh. Alas! Throgmorton's tendrils waved oddly. It is impossible to convey the real significance of cultural icons to others, don't you find? But then the paparazzi spilled into the reception hall of the Park Plaza's original Manhattan Hotel. The announcement of Tiffany Harrod and Moore's new Throgmorton label of sensual wear, with designs by the shockingly up-to-the-instant Alsatia, previously designer to an extremely select clientele, had captured the attention of the entire world of fashion newsploitation. Eyebrows had been raised at rumours of an extraordinary buyout of Throgmorton's employer and the catapulting of career salesgirl Menine Nudson to chief buyer for the vid-order Naughties of Newark chain. It was the classic story of out-of-towner makes good in the big city and remembers who got him there. It sold ad spots. It warmed hearts. There just had to be a scandal in it somewhere. Though rich beyond her bridge club's wildest dreams, Miss Douglas still had them over to her sensible Bel Air mansion once a month. 
when her eyes would drift to the little ivory casket that held, as she told them, a small but precious gift from an old acquaintance, they would try to get her to talk about her famous Thalia Majoran friend. "'What brought that up again?' she would always complain. "'You know I don't really approve of people from other planets.' <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Timmins the Seer. Timmins, what can I say? Oh, man, fantastic. Well, hope we get you back on the show. And Nick, I'll drag you back on the show, <laughs> kicking and screaming if I have to. Just a fantastic narration. Oh, man. I can teach you a thing or two, you know what I mean? Pep up your voice a little bit there, a little few dips and highs. But I'll, you know, I'll let them, let them slide. <laughs> so that is today's show. See, I'm in the background, got lots going on. There's so much kind of got so much going on in my mind. Do you know what I mean? Kind of interested in doing things and pushing things and doing other things and all this kind of stuff. So keep, you know, abreast of it. Keep listening to the Starship Sofa. Tell your friends about it. I see, got lots of new stuff coming up. But don't forget, if you want one of those tickets for SovaCon, that's the next thing that's kind of up and running. And on, it's going to be, you know, very, very soon, the 14th and 15th of March. There's a couple of tickets left. If you want to come over, that would be fantastic. I would love to see you there. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. <laughs> survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.